Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the newly minted back from GameholeCon, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, welcome back. You too. It was great seeing you there. We saw all kinds of friends. We saw uh, folks who who support us and who listen to the show. And we saw people we look up to that are like amazing in the industry. And we were on panels and played games. It was lovely. It was. It's it's always great to just be sort of walking down the hallway and have someone come up and say, sorry, sorry. I just want to say I love your podcast. Mm. And I'm always like, well, who are you? Hey. Uh, but generally, there's like traffic and I can, can't can stop. But And every time it was it me, just right? Fills... Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah. Every time it was, hey, I love Teos's podcast. <laughs> I'm glad you're there, too. That is not at all true. But that... But it's it's so cool because sometimes in this industry, with or with any creative process, right? You're home alone, you maybe haven't played or run a game in weeks, and it's just like, oh, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. And just to get out and know that people are listening to this show, know that people are playing your games, it means it means the world. So. Yeah. You know, yeah. thank you, not just the people who, you know, support us on Patreon or who listen to the show, but, you know, thank you to to all the players out there who just keep this hobby alive through just doing what you love, which is playing and, and running games. Amen. Uh, Sean, two fun things I want to mention. One is that there was a, a Kickstarter that didn't fund um, that someone who listens to the show sent us info about, and they actually, you know, had made it. And it's this... Uh, I can get that to Adventurer's Compendium cards. And we had talked about it. And and I so he sent me, you know, a version that he made. And so it's this deck of cards. And if you look at it, it sort of explains how to play D&D from the first card on. Right. Like like there's a how to do it. And it's what's adventuring and encounters and the ability scores. And you go through all of them. And once you've done that and sort of learned the book via a deck of cards, you then actually can. use them for various things at your table, like the condition cards or to remind yourself of how grappled works, anything like that. And I was really impressed with it. Really cool. So at some point they're going to relaunch the adventures compendium cards, and that'll be cool when it comes out. The other cool thing. Awesome. The uh, RPG from Free League, uh, Vessen, it is available free. Mm -hmm. I don't know for how long it might be just like you know, it might be done by the time this podcast airs, but, you, you know, it's either a cautionary tale to watch those Halloween sales on drive through or uh, maybe you can make it in time and, and download it for free. But th- that's really cool. So I've been looking at that this morning. It's really neat. Awesome. I will make a note to do that immediately after we stop recording. So thank you for letting us know. And let's get right to it. Let's get to our listener corner taking questions, comments, thoughts, diatribes, rants, manifestos, etc. from our <laughs> listeners. First, we get Scott Gregerson via our Patreon Discord. I'm hacking together classes and systems for a 5e game set in a near future setting. I'd like to have a little more robust social interaction system than standard 5e, and I was looking at putting together direct systems regarding a character's contacts, information they can gather, leads for them to follow, etc. 
We often talk about one character being the face of the party, and I thought maybe making the social systems into specific classes would make them feel less superfluous and more integral to the experience. And that's my question. Do you think assigning systematic features to various mm -hmm. pillars of the game and loading those into classes increases the chance they're used? Or does it tend to become more a series of mini games that only certain players around the table interact with and would alienate others? Great question. Teos, you have a little experience with this thanks to our Acquisitions Incorporated uh, book. So do you want to take a first crack at this question? Sure. It's a fantastic question. Um, I think, you know, where where I think this can really work is at the table level. So at your table and at any one person's table, usually you find that people settle into roles. And so even if you have two charismatic characters, they'll kind of work it out so that one of them becomes the primary face of the party, if you will. And the other person sort of compliments and may take on another role, but it sort of happens organically because somebody, you, you, you know, they don't want to intrude upon each other. Even if you have two rogues, you'll find one of them ends up being the trap rogue. The interesting thing is you don't know until that all starts happening. <laughs> so there's the danger that you, if you try to do it in the system in the RPG beforehand, you can force things down a path that, that aren't meant to happen, sort of, if that makes sense. What we did in Acquisitions Incorporated is we thought about roles that were a little bit, they were somewhat things like the face, but it was more like the player who writes down all the notes, right? The player that's always interacting with the quest givers, the player who keeps track of all the treasure. Those are roles that, that, that very naturally end up being split up. And you see those really kind of happen again at every table. And so we could give these roles to characters at the beginning because they they kind of were a type of player more than a type of character. And so it was a little easier to say up front, there's going to be a little bit of a and it wasn't really a system, right? But it was it was features for those. I don't know. What, what do you think, Sean? I think that what you're describing is great to do for a certain type of campaign. And maybe that is a type of campaign that this near future uh, setting would be. The question at its core, though, for me, goes back to 5E is a system which is there to do one thing, and it's to see how fast you can get rid of your enemy's hit points before <laughs> they get rid of yours. And so the classes, the subclasses, even the backgrounds work toward that thing. They give you the tools to either take away creatures hit points or keep creatures from taking away your hit points. Mm -hmm. Is that very reductionist? I absolutely. Does more go into a D&D game, into a D&D campaign than that? Absolutely. But at its core, that's what the game is. Yeah. So in order to make a system that works outside of combat with role-playing, with exploration, then you need to change the chassis of the game so either the role-playing and the exploration are taking away hit points or keeping things from taking away your hit points, or 
in some way making a system that taking away of hit points is rivaled by the thing that that you are creating what if and you in order to do that you you need to make a system that is just as robust as the 5D combat system because otherwise people are always even if they're inexperienced players mm -hmm. they still understand that after a while this is I am keeping track of my hit points more than I'm keeping track of anything else. The game master is keeping track of hit points more than they're keeping track of anything else. That's the important thing in this game. And the things I do must move in that direction. What if you did something like, because it is near future. So you'd, you'd say you're, you know, if the premise of the game is you're on a team, teams have these roles. So as part of character creation, choose these roles, right? And then you'd get those subsystems via whatever that role structure is so that you, you, mm -hmm. you are forcing at the beginning to say, Hey, everybody during character creation as a team, choose your team roles. Now you're going to get this package of benefits, whatever it is that drives those kinds of play. Mm -hmm. I suspect that could kind of work, yeah. right? So that if you're like, I'm the driver or the pilot, whatever. Uh, I'm the gear person, gear master, equipment master. I'm the, uh, you know, team lead. I'm the whatever. And and you gave people some features like that. It could it could happen, right? Like team lead could have warlord type benefits, right? You take a move action yeah. now, you know that you, kind of stuff. You totally could. I mean, what you're describing to me is something you could do with backgrounds, mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. and and so you can totally do that. the The question I fear though is. Uh, Scott is talking about classes, mm -hmm. like giving, making a class that is specific yeah. to role playing, or the, and that's where you have to strike that balance of what does your game do, yeah. and what's the goal of the players. So you could totally do what you're saying. You could say, well, you're a barbarian, but you're also the blank, yeah. right? You are the intimidator, right? You but if you are say the persuader. Yeah, if you, you say you're the order. barbarian, therefore you have to be the equipment specialist. And so I'm going to remove some of your features and give you equipment features. Then then that does, I think that that's a problem. That's hard. So, so it's right. almost like you have to be talking right. about adding things and you have to wonder whether classes really line up with whatever you're adding. And I, I, I mean, I think yeah. we're agreeing. Like I, I, I would tend to think the class is not the place mm -hmm. to put it. Um, and instead it should be something like what we did with that Inc, where there, you know, there are roles or something additional that you can add on to it to reflect that campaign setting would probably work best. I think. Yeah. yeah. So, so the answer is hmm. yes, you could do it, but you would have to create your own system and it would probably take, you know, two years of design and then two years of role playing to get it right. <laughs> um, or you can make an additive system that we're talking about and it's still not going to be perfect but at least you are not taking anything away from anyone and you're giving them things that will hopefully be useful within the milieu of the game that you're running. Hmm. So I, I hope that helps. Uh, next via Mastodon, we have a question from PhD 20. Do skill lists like 5e limit player creativity? Does a player basing actions off of that list lead to rewarding gameplay? more often than not, or does removing the list of skills encourage more creativity 
or do you think it introduces more problems than it's attempting to solve? In my experience, the answer is the boring but accurate, it depends. But I'd really love to hear your thoughts regardless. Thanks for the show. PhD 20, PhD 20, it depends. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, it depends. Uh, rules like skills give ideas to players. Players might sometimes need those ideas. They can also be an indicator of what a player or character is good at. And it's important in 5e that characters do the things they're good at because 5e does not uh, does not reward failure. The story doesn't move forward on failure a lot. It usually only moves forward on success. So you want the people doing the things that they're best at to keep the game and the story moving forward as opposed to stalling as check after check after check fails. So it's it's good to have that skill list for that reason. Mm -hmm. Now, the other side of it, I'm going to let Teos talk about. Well, what came to mind for me, Sean, was that there's recently been discussion on our Discord about things like Apocalypse World and saying that, you know, sometimes moves can be pretty confining. And yet we think of Apocalypse World as sort of, you know, open play and, and do what you want. There isn't even an initiative order, right? You can just do the things that you would do because this is what your character is about. But even that can be confining. And I was also thinking about my experience playing uh, Simbarum and, no, it wasn't Simbarum, I was playing uh, a Mork Borg at Game Hall. And it has what I guess you could sort of consider skills, but they're they're almost like proficiency slash ability areas. You know, they're they're and they had names that were sort of generic enough that I didn't feel like I or other people at the table really even knew what they meant. Like we could categorize things, but they didn't really tell me what to do with my character. And so it would just be something that I, I would be saying what I wanted to do. And then the DM would say, Oh yeah, use this thing for it and roll against that. And I'd often find, oh, I'm minus two or something like that. And I would just roll and hope I rolled high. And that was interesting to me because it it really, I felt like in a lot of ways, the answer is yes, skill lists actually are helpful. Um, and because they help me think about the things that I want to do a little more. But also no, because then they can find it, right? It's it's a, it, I do think it, it's not just even it depends. I would say like it's it's a it's a bit of both at the same time and and you're trying right. to I, I think you really hit on something when you talked about what else the system is doing um and 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 this sort of pass fail reality of dnd skill lists are really helpful for that to 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 help you understand what you're good at and what you should be leaning towards not just based on who you are but based on the game itself and the skill list ties into all kinds of other things. It's how the DM adjudicates and the types of challenges they present and all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So skills do all of this stuff for the game and they have done really since third edition. So I think that you can yeah. remove skill lists, but it may not quite solve the problem you want. And, and it's hard to make it really solve the problem that you want to solve around creating open play. I think instead what I would turn, tend to do, Sean, is fix how adventures are written and how situations are presented. Mm -hmm. 
And I find that the whole concept of you can do anything you want really has to do with presenting interesting, engaging challenges where everybody wants to engage with them with creative ways because of the nature of that problem. And then people really do off the wall things in D&D and the skill system is still there and is still doing its beneficial things. Yeah. Two, two things come to mind. One thing I'm sure if you've game mastered a lot, especially for a lot of different groups, you've run into this problem. You're role playing a situation and one player begins to go down a line of questioning, whether it's trying to convince somebody of something or trying to discern the truth or, or something. And so they're go you're role-playing along, you're role-playing along, you're role-playing along. And finally you get to the point where you realize, okay, what they're trying to do is now calling for a check. <laughs> and so you say, please make a persuasion check. And the player goes, Oh no, I didn't want you to ask for a persuasion check because I've got a minus mm -hmm. one on my charisma and I'm not trained in persuasion. Uh, and so that's that's the conflict of of this game we play. Yeah. Right. Sure. Is the 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 thing that the rules do aren't always the thing that's best for your game. Right. The other thing that comes to mind is, and I, I say this quite a bit now, is one of the worst ways to sell a role-playing game in general or 5e specifically is to say you can do anything you want. Because you're comparing it to board games and computer games where mm -hmm. you're restricted by the, the rule system or by the AI of, of the, the computer. And so you say, well, you can do anything you want, but you really can't or you really <laughs> shouldn't do anything you want. Mm -hmm. So you, know, you, you say that to the person playing the wizard for the first time. And, and they say, oh, okay. So you try to do this narrative play style where you don't worry about the rules. You try to get them into the role playing, which is fun. And so you go on and just do, do what you think your character would do, right? Okay. So you're role playing along and all of a sudden combat starts and the wizard says, well, I run up and hit it with my club. Sure. And you try to say, well... Don't do that because that you know your strength is minus one. And even if you hit, you'd only do one d six minus one damage. You want to cast firebolt because then you're plus five yeah. to hit, and you're doing a d ten damage. Uh, so yeah. the games, the game wants you to do certain things, and that's what the rules are telling you uh, to do these things that you're good at. To to yeah. so you, it's that tension. It's the tension that I talk about all the time between the story that you're telling and the rules, what the rules expect yeah. and want you to do. And if you can come up with a way that's foolproof to do that, and that's what Apocalypse World's tr World tries to do, mm -hmm. right? It tries to be the, you just, you're just telling a story. And if you just happen to do a thing that triggers a move, then you would roll to do the move. Mm -hmm. But then people are like trying to turn the story toward the move or they're telling a story and they're doing things that they actually don't want to roll, but they end up there anyway because the rules tell you you have to or should. So no game is perfect in that way. Yeah. Uh, and at least no role-playing game. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things I actually love about new additions and new games is seeing kind of how we endlessly try to fix this. And, 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 like this sounds like a problem, but but it's one of those problems that's kind of nice to have because it leads 
us on this path of so many different games and so many different ways to try to to get there and, and that's fun to to experience so <laughs> it's a good problem to have in the end i think if, if we didn't have this problem life would be boring <laughs> it's true it's true uh last question this is a this comes to us via merrick blackman via our discord but via mt black via mastodon <laughs> so uh, merrick pushed us toward MT Black's uh, Mastodon post. Folks complain about the three-book format for new settings, and I get why, says MT. But if Ravnica or Theros had come with a 5-10 to 10 level adventure included, like Spelljammer and Dragonlance in 5e does, even at the loss of some of the lore, many more folks would still be playing those settings today. And... Yeah. You can agree or disagree with that statement, depending on what you prefer in your products, what products and what content in those products speak to you the most. But I agree. I agree that adventures do more uh, than just provide content for game masters. I think that's important. Providing something for game masters to run and players to play is, is high on the list of important things you need in a setting. But it provides more than that. They give a blueprint for the game master to create their own content. And so that's why I love this three book format that uh, that they've continued with for a few products now. I'm still on the fence. I don't, I don't know how much I love it or not. I love it in principle. And I don't love it in a whole other set of ways. I don't love the real estate it takes up on my shelf. I find myself being not particularly enchanted by the monsters and don't really want that many and a whole book of them. I think I want that to just be somewhere, you know, I think I prefer it being at the back of the book. Um, I think the included adventures are, are a good idea. Um, but some of these other things we're talking about, you know, Theros had an adventure. Is it the best adventure to sell the setting? No, but but it has a serviceable adventure that does talk through, you know, does walk through some of the aspects of the setting. If it were much bigger, would it have made a huge difference for Theros? I'm not sure that it would. And one of the things that came up in this conversation was Van Richten's. You know, Van Richten's has an adventure. It's actually really a very good adventure. It's just maybe more complex than the book has, but I doubt that it that influence sales and and at, at the bottom of this is that i don't understand the sales right so spelljammer is selling really well but people complain about it um and I, i'm not sure you know in raven um theros was a, people talk about how amazing it is but you don't hear many people talking about running it and is it really just because of an adventure i i don't know that that's the key i I would say that there's a difference between a short adventure and a long campaign length or long, you know, longer than a one night session adventure. Um, I think if you stick a one shot or two shot adventure in the back of the book, that that is enough of a blueprint, mm -hmm. enough of a bit of content to really grab game masters. I think a longer you know, a 96 page adventure right. with several levels worth of content makes a difference. 
So I would differentiate those there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I for sure, you know, it was interesting. One of the things that we saw resounding agreement on in our panel at Game Holcon uh, for Mastering Dungeons was folks saying, yeah, I like having an adventure included in a setting product because even if I don't run it, I will use this as a blueprint. And so, so that was a, a very clear indicator what that adventure has to look like, how big it has to be, how many levels it has to span. I, that's unclear. Um, the three book format is, is a very interesting piece. I mean, it's a higher price point and economics tells us that has to drive some people away. Right. And, 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 and sometimes things have to pan out over time. Like, you know, maybe you buy Spelljammer and you buy Planescape, but how many of those higher price point things can you buy, right? To get to the deck of many things being $100. At some point, you've been plunking down 100 or near $100, you know, 60 to 100 several times. And that's the equivalent of buying a lot of books separately, right? So you're paying for that three book format. And at some point you might conclude that, well, I wish I wasn't paying for the outer box of the slipcase and the DM screen and the, and the. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I also know that as we've said so many times, uh, content's underpriced, role-playing game content's yeah. underpriced. We've just oh, seen yeah. Paizo, uh, up, up their prices on all their existing pre existing and future products. Um, and it had to happen and I'm not, I I'm with everyone else, right? I, there's going to be some things I just don't buy because of the price. Uh, but I'm, I'm not, uh, sad to see the industry start to catch up with the rest of the world in terms of how much this content is actually worth. Yeah, that's very true. Well, thank you everybody for those questions. You can send in your questions, you know, via email at our Discord, via YouTube, on all of the social media where we're at. We will take your question and run with it. So thank you. Now let's get on to our news and commentary section. And first, there is a delay with the deck of many things. What happened here, Teos? Ooh, quality issues. Um, it was set to release on November 14th at a premium price of $110. And early reviews talked about the cards having a number of issues. Uh, there's a band that secures the cards, and apparently it's so tight that when you remove it, you can damage the foil edge on the cards. The cards are not all of the same size. So you can take the deck that comes in your box and hold it, and you see like an up-down kind of pattern. And that makes it hard to shuffle them. It's not just a visual thing, but a functional thing. They don't shuffle evenly. Um, the cards are often curved, some convex and some concave. So they don't lay flat very well and can sort of feel different between the, the various cards that come in a given set. And then there were cosmetic issues, creases, disfigured edges, variants in how the cards were centered. Uh, so all of this uh, came up in, in early reviews and led uh, Kyle Brink to tell Polygon, quote, we are going to be suspending the ship date until we can get to the bottom of this and remanufacture and redistribute copies that don't have these issues. The defect rate is too high. I cannot in good conscience ship this stock. We need to fully inspect it, understand exactly how many units are defective, all that. So it's clearly early in the process. Um, product has already moved out to partners to be sold through the distribution network. So you've got to recall all that. 
Um, so who knows? They plan on still releasing all of the digital products on November 14th, but anything that's physical, probably they'll handle the pre-orders first and then they'll go out to the distribution network again. Maybe they miss the important holiday sales season. And that would be really rough for something that's, you know, a hundred dollar product that might be that nice gift that someone gets the gamer in their lives. So um that's a big deal. Yeah. Yep. And you know, good on them, I guess, for catching it in time and taking the steps that that they did. Uh yeah, I could as much as I heard people complaining about it, I would he, I think we would hear more complaining if they didn't fix it. So, yeah, it's impressive. I mean, you can argue that. Well, I think most companies would have sold this. Um, I, I've seen a number of cases in the past for board games, especially, but but also RPGs where the cards aren't particularly great quality uh, cards or tiles. And that's just the way it goes for that print run. Um, even within Wizards, there was the early version of uh, Betrayal of the House of the Hill, where the, you know, I, I have that version and everything kind of, <laughs> you can't lay it flat easily yeah, on the table. Too. And, you know, they made another printing, yeah. but but it was what it was. You didn't get your version back. And I've had games like Forbidden Island where I had to request replacement tiles because they were so scarred that you knew exactly which tile was which. These things happen. Uh, it's impressive that Wizards would take this step and, and maybe ties into the whole OGL thing, right? Where they say, we really can't take a further hit on uh, how people perceive us. And so let's do the right thing and, and change it. And that leads us directly into Hasbro's earnings report for quarter three. Uh, good. Is it good? Is it bad news, Teos? What, what do we have from Hasbro uh, at, on quarter three uh, earnings? It's generally terrible news. I mean, the, the toy market has been soft and everybody can take guesses just in terms of society as to why that is. You know, why aren't kids playing with toys when and instead looking at their phones? I have no idea. Is it the phones? It could be the phones. But um, so there's already a difficult environment. Hasbro has already been trying to sort of turn down expectations and then it ends up even worse. Um, so they in Q3, they had uh, a net revenue of 1.5 billion, which is a 10% drop. Uh, the operating profit is reported at minus 170 million, adjusted to positive 343 million. How do you play those games? You might ask. Um, you know, I don't get to do that with my income, but but they do because what they can do is say, well, hey, we sold E1, or actually are selling E1. And so they're putting the sale that is happening of E1 into this to say that actually they're positive. But you can only sell E1 once. <laughs> so in reality, Hasbro has lost a lot of money this quarter. And that's despite a lot of cost cutting. And so I think that, you know, from an analyst perspective, overall company, uh, it, it's rough. Um, looking at the nine month performance. So the is whole there... year. Yeah, good. No, I was going to say, is there any good news? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah. And let me just say that they've lost $428 million if you yeah. look at the start of the year. So the, the nine months here. Um, so that is a problem. Good news. Yes. D&D uh, is up. Yes, maybe. But it's really hard to figure out what that means. And I had some fun uh, with one of the show listeners trying to go through the data. And we actually thought maybe at one point we could pinpoint what the value was for D&D RPG tabletop sales. But boy, they put everything in so many buckets that you can never quite compare the numbers. 
So the answer is not not this quarter. Um, all we know is they like to say that D&D is up. And this is something they've said kind of often, but not in the same language as before. Like before they would say D&D tabletop is up. Now they just sort of say D&D. What does D&D mean? Well, it's up greater than plus 100% because of Baldur's Gate 3. Sure. Uh, the Wizards of the Coast and Digital Gaming segment had 40% revenue growth behind the launch of Baldur's Gate 3, and to the lesser extent, an April launch of a Monopoly Go app. If you take out digital, then you end up with, with what they call franchise brands, and those grew 8% behind Magic the Gathering, D&D, Hasbro Gaming, and Transformers. You still can't separate out that D&D part. And even when there's a slide talking about yeah. Wizards Tabletop, which says it's up 14% for the quarter and 1% for the year. That also includes Magic the Gathering. Um, there, there is uh, some showing some, there's, there's still some interesting tidbits. I mean, the, there's a slide that says that uh, digital, uh, looking at digital, Baldur's Gate 3 is probably a big part of that plus 23% from digital gaming licenses. And so probably a huge part of all this Q3 growth. If you separate that out, Magic and D&D are only up 1% for the year. Um, if you look at digital games separate from Baldur's Gate 3, so the non-licensed part, which includes Magic the Gathering Arena and D&D Beyond, that has 2% growth. So it's not like D&D Beyond is some you know, unbelievable rocket or something like that. And of course, Magic the Arena is powerful, so not a ton of growth there. Right. Um, in raw figures, they say that tabletop gaming, including Magic the Gathering, is reported at 290.5 million for Q3. Digital and licensed gaming is 133 million. Um, so, you know, one interesting thing is on the D&D side, we've had all these product delays. If you look at July to September, the only thing that's in that is Fandelver, and then it's products that already have been printed before that are just sort of continuing to sell. So you'd think maybe Q4 would pick everything up for the D&D tabletop side. But as part of the Q&A, the CFO of Hasbro said, so D&D, I think it's down a tick in the fourth quarter. But maybe they just mean because Baldur's Gate 3 would slow. It's so hard to tell, Sean. So right. big picture, uh, Hasbro needs answers. The things that Alta Fox said that we covered, you know, many moons ago, where they argued that Wizards of the Coast is successful and Hasbro isn't and Wizards is carrying Hasbro. I don't know that I fully agree, but boy, it sure looks that way financially. Um, on the D&D &D side, it's doubtful that D&D &D publishing is seeing enormous growth. So what does that mean, right? Does Hasbro say, hey, make me more money somehow? Does Hasbro say, Keep doing what you're doing and our focus is on digital and in fact we're no longer really putting our eye of sauron on you have fun make a great game i don't know you know but hasbro overall needs answers and and the dnd growth is is probably not coming from paper and maybe not from dnd beyond either and that's interesting <laughs> well we will yeah we will definitely keep in that we have lots of links in the show notes about this and we will keep an eye as we roll into 2024 to see what happens in those first two quarters before we likely will get uh, the first publication of the 5e2e uh, player's handbook. I mean, and that's, yeah, if we don't and, see uh, some quarter, Sean, where they say, and the 2024 release, you know, has resulted in tremendous growth, that'll be a warning sign, right? 
yes, it will. Uh, we go from the financial to the game mantial. We saw a glimpse of what is coming from D&D at a game hole con panel uh, that was had a bunch of Wizards of the Coast employees uh, on that panel. Uh, Dave Rogers on EN World covered this news from the Watsi panel, so you can find that coverage on EN World. What did they talk about? They talked about the 2024 books. They kept talking about a surprise in the 5e DMG, and now they've announced that it will have a campaign setting, which we sort of thought maybe was mm -hmm. the surprise. This is likely what that is. And uh, during our 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide review, we thought, okay, this this is likely what it's going to be. Something like the Nentir Vale, mm -hmm. maybe a return to a classic setting, maybe something brand new like like the Nentir Vale. Uh, what what do you think, or what what did you note being said about that, Tess? Yeah, I mean, I had to pat ourselves on the back a bit because it was fun that we kind of said, well, gee, if you look at the previous DMGs, you know. What, what does the 4E1 have that's great? Well, it's, it has a setting, right? Like, that's kind of what's missing. Um, so I'm, I'm super curious what that will be, right? Do you go new? Do you recreate Nentir Vale? Do you, which I doubt they would do. Um, do you go back to, you know, put Greyhawk in there as the third edition sort of did a little bit? Yeah, I don't know. Um, they also talked about, uh, often they repeated this concept as gateway to new players. Uh, for the player's handbook and the DMG. So it's apparently a new player focus. Um, I'd, I'd like to see how that plays out, right? So far, when I look at any previews, you know, nothing in the Bastion system says to me as a great way to get new players to be invested, right? This looks to me how you get existing experienced players to be invested. Or if I look at all the class changes or any of that, to me, that all seems ways to encourage investment by those who are already in the network, right? So I'll be curious to see how that plays out. What else, Sean? Oh, they talked about new magic items to fill in rarity niches and more cool common items too. Finally, for or at least finally for fifth edition, uh, a return to the 1980 cartoon series and the magic items that those characters uh, had, which is something that, Chris Perkins seemed oddly giddy about. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Teos notes in our show notes that there were third edition versions, versions of these items. I think he even made the three versions for, um, I, I might be wrong, but I, I feel like these were in the DVD of the cartoon series that he had designed them along with, I don't know, maybe Peter Lee or somebody like that. But I, I'd have to check my notes to be sure. I, you know, it, they will do everything with this cartoon other than launch the cartoon. And it's the funniest thing because it's as we get older and older, like how many people have actually seen this cartoon? Like at some point you really need to do, you need to go back to the thing or you're doing a weird nostalgia to something most of your audience doesn't understand. So, you know, I'll enjoy seeing what they do with the magic bow and the lasso and the staff and the hat. But, um, you know, at some point I want the cartoon for that next generation to enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Yep. They also mentioned that the monster manual will have more high level creatures. They noted things uh, that they'll put in the stat blocks that were missing before, like the proficiency bonuses. Mm -hmm. So we hopefully, or 
likely we'll see an update of the stat block moving more in line with the Monsters of the Multiverse uh, book that was released recently. Our Discord is often wondering, will the monsters themselves change, right? Like it's one thing to have cosmetic things, you know, maybe they might move the CR to be higher up the way that uh, uh, you, you found it with MCDM products. But, you know, are they going to make the monsters harder to compensate for how strong characters are? Maybe not. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. And we will also see a new multiverse anthology coming out in 2024 that will revisit D&D's past. It looks like uh, this will be an anthology along the lines of Radiant Citadel and uh, Ghosts of Saltmarsh and Tales of the Yawning Portal, except they will all be new adventures or likely be new adventures that sort of cover the breadth of D&D over the last 50 years. They shared a ton of images. Uh, Chris Perkins ran one of the adventures from this book, the, a Ravenloft-focused adventure at Game Holcon. Uh, we saw the image of Ilwig's daughter, uh, ugh, Drelzna, uh, from that adventure. The sheep and wolves clothing monster from Barrier Peaks. <laughs> They mentioned it maybe bringing in the route of seven parts as one does when one writes a long-term campaign to link adventures together. Uh, so uh, yeah, that is something that I think, well, I want to, I want to get your take on it first. You know, it's hard to say D Dave Rogers did a great job covering this for EN world um, and, and, you know, sharing things during the con I, but a lot of it was sort of his conjecture. And, and one of the things I'm really curious about is that Chris did say at one point the book had been announced and there aren't many things announced for 2024. The one big thing that has been is this some sort of Vecna adventure, right? So maybe this is all. Maybe the Vecna adventure is a walk through all these things, which would be an interesting thing to do. Um, I always make the joke, you know, we will continue stripping Greyhawk for parts until morale improves. Um, and maybe that's more of this, but or or maybe it's a Greyhawk focused adventure, which a lot of these things I mean, Sojkant is in Greyhawk, uh, Barrier Peaks is in Greyhawk, so maybe this is all a romp through old Greyhawk. I don't know. It'd be very interesting to see. I, I'm 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 super curious what they do, um, and and what this anthology and or Vecna adventure ends up looking like. And just to just to give the right credit, I think it's Dave Rosser, Rosser not Dave sorry. Rogers. Rosser. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Uh, I was reading the notes and I I realized that's that's not because uh, you know Dave is a wonderful spokesperson for the industry. Uh, he does great work, and I just wanted to make sure we gave him the proper Thank credit. You. I appreciate that. Um, Thanks, Dave. Yeah, and yep, and and I I will agree with you and say that. If you're going to have a 50th anniversary product, this is the kind of product I want. Uh, you know, I want something that harkens back to the entire game that's still useful moving forward. But me as an old timer can say, oh, yeah, I remember that that adventure. I remember that NPC. Oh, we had such fun playing this game. And now I can play it for a brand new generation of folks. So yeah. uh, very excited to to see that when it comes out. Uh we had an update, finally, from the Adventurers League on their Yawning Portal website. Ma'at Crook provided updates 
an update to the service awards document that provides game masters with rewards for running games in the Adventures League. Uh, those those uh, rewards are generally giving your character that you play in, in the Adventures League uh, a benefit. The Liar's Night event is now available, providing Halloween-themed transformations that your characters can undertake. Not only can you become a werewolf once per session, you can become a were-jack-o'-lantern, a were-witch-bat, and a were-black-cat. And of course, everyone's favorite, the were-candy-corn. For sure, for that delicious <laughs> waxiness. Um, That's a character concept yeah. right there. It is. It, it totally is. And there are also adaptation guides that either have been released or will be released to run your Adventures League character through the uh, Fandelver adventure and the Planescape adventure using AL rules. Cool. And all that is there for you on the yawning portal.dnd.wizards.com website. Any other news, Teos? Anything else you want to add? That's the news, my friend. With the news covered, then we will move on to our main topic today here on Mastering Dungeons. We are going to continue our world-spanning, realm-diving look into Planescape, Book One, Sigil, and the Outlands. We've covered Chapter 1, which looked at character options, and we covered part of Chapter 2, looking at Sigil, the City of Doors, the Cage... And now we are going to finish chapter two by looking at the factions and the different uh, wards of Sigil. So whew, we talked yeah. about the Lady of Pain really quickly last time. Uh, you know, who she is, what she does. She's basically the deus ex machina it's plot point. The thing without a stat block. So this yeah. this is the game master's ability to move pieces without the players being able to counter it in a game mechanical way. Uh, we talked about the Debus, the servants who go around and do the Lady of Pain's bidding and communicate via visual illusions in the form of rebuses, <laughs> uh, which is its own special uh, joy and or pain, depending on how you look at it. We talked about the mazes where the Lady of Pain will send naughty adventurers and or uh, inhabitants of Sigil. Yeah, apparently even entire escape factions. Unless you can fight. It, apparently. And <laughs> uh, we talked about the Lady of Pain's control of all the portals uh, where she can lock things down and make it impossible for anyone to get into or to leave Sigil. And we left it there. Now we are going to get into the factions. And I'm going to take a big sip of water yeah. and let Teos lead us into this topic. And I think one of the things that's really fascinating is putting this all together, right? That you've got this city that has portals that only open, I guess, with her permission, with the Lady of Pain's permissions. You have factions that the concept of them is that they're sort of these iconic philosophical concepts that they represent, but these also translate to city functions like the law, the jails, things like that, um, the chaos and disruption. Um, and these iconic things then play roles in the city and in fact color the city itself. And the city is divided into wards, as we'll talk about later. And those wards are colored by the factions that 
are strongest in them. And if you have a faction leave or a new one begin, this will change the city itself. And that's a really fascinating concept. I like it. Um, I immediately want to go, cool, how do I know how to do something with that as a DM, right? And, and I immediately think, boy, I hope that the, the attached adventure helps me, or the one inserted in the slipcase, helps me work with that because that's a really fun idea if I can understand how to apply it. Yeah. And for me, when I, when I read this, I remembered from the original edition of this uh, setting that, you know, the factions were there and they were very important and that some people loved them yeah. and some people ignored them. Yeah. And it made me think of the launch of fifth edition with the factions that they use mm. in the Forgotten Realms. And how you can tie them to stories, or you can tie the characters to one of them, or you can set the characters against a faction, and how what a good tool they are, as long as they are used well. And as you say, Teos, the question is, how do you use them well? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if anything used them. The Adventures League started by using them quite well. Yeah. yeah. Because you could put your character in a faction, and then you could have different goals or different stories yeah. based on the faction that you were in but that takes a lot of work and even tyranny and of dragons as soon as tomb of annihilation right through tomb i'd say and a little right. bit and beyond that and we see glimpses but they were often used really well and i think what made the difference is i know and you saw this too we got to see from the inside various glimpses into how well wizards how 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 thoroughly wizards worked on the five factions to try to make harpers and lords alliance and all of this really be uh comprehensible to any partner right whether you were writing in the adventures league or you were um you know cobalt press working on the first adventure you understood these factions and the work was done and i think that over time they kind of forgot that they'd done this much work and it was just sort of assumed that you'll just weave in the factions. And so they get weaker and weaker over time. Right. But you need that. You need that way to make it so memorable that you know exactly what to do with this faction and how they fit into society and what to run, how to use them. Right. The Zentarm are an obvious how to use. The Emerald Enclave are an obvious how to use. Even the Harpers, they're generally pretty obvious in a adventure that you're writing once you understand them. Will these be that way? Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of the D&D movie in this sense, mm -hmm. because we as veteran players and <clears throat> aficionados of the Forgotten Realms understood that, oh, this prison, it's run by the Lord's Alliance. Yeah. Oh, the Harpers, they're the, they're, they're generally, they're the good guys who look out for things. Um, and, and take the, away the bad Emerald artifacts, Enclave, right? That's, they take right, away all right. those bad artifacts uh, the, and put the them in Emerald place. Enclave. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. The Emerald Enclave, yes, they're looking out for nature. And so we recognize those connections. Someone who didn't know anything about Forgotten Realms or anything about D&D could still partake of the story, and they didn't need to know those connections. Mm -hmm. They could just say, okay, well, these are the authorities who are running the prison. These are the forest dwellers who want to save the forest. 
These are the good guys who want to protect the land from the evil artifacts. We don't need to know their names. They are just a general trope. And that has power, but that also uh, detracts from the power of those groups in terms of the stories that you're telling when they become so generic that they just stand in for anything that they represent. So when I see 12 or more factions in Planescape, it, it heartens me to say, well, okay, now we're going to have really niche uh, factions in terms of what they do. But you're also making a lot of factions to have to keep track of and differentiate between the other factions. So the first question that I wanted to ask you mm. is one you asked already, maybe in different wording, which is, what are some great ways to lean into factions, mm. especially in Planescape, to make a memorable campaign while avoiding some of the pitfalls that we've been talking about? Yeah, and, and I'll tie this into another thing that that I think the classic did that you don't see in this edition, which is there was a lot of language thrown around, right? There was there were all these uh, mm -hmm. uh, terms like Burke and and even the cage, right? There was slang that was used all the time, and this, along with factions, were sort of tools to help you get into character. And I think that the the concept of of the original Planescape, and I, and it feels like it's much softer here, right? Now it's an option. Uh, but it was really supposed to be that you were a member of a faction. At least that's how I always saw Planescape uh, and, and how I saw it played. So by being part of a faction, you had to choose your role within the city or you were going to join and, and choose that role in the city. And then the conflicts were expected to happen, right? The philosophers with clubs aspect of old Planescape, where not only is it clubs as in groups, but as in beating each other and 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 warring with one another. And you were supposed to kind of argue in this slang against even the other players, which was interesting. Yeah. So making the characters part of a faction mm -hmm. uh, is is good. Moving into and out of the alignment with other, alignment in terms of, you know, coming together to share a goal and then working against each other, watching these uh, alliances shift yeah. becomes more important if you are within one of the, the factions to to uh, not just uh, uh, watch it, but to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I would add then is if you do if you do make characters part of a faction, have dissent within the faction itself. Maybe for the first couple levels, everything's hunky-dory and everyone's working towards the same goal. But having some internal strife within the faction gives the characters a little more drama in their existence. It gives them something to, to rub up against that they thought was smooth, and now it's a burr that they need to work out. Yeah, great. Uh, any other thoughts along the lines of using factions? Um, you know, ideally, I think what what I the questions I had reading this section is: Are these supposed to be color for the city? Because if you think of typical cities, right, like the people who run the laws, the people who are the the guards, who are the 
um, you know, the guilds, whatever, like those are often sort of color and they impact play, but they aren't by default opposition unless the particular plot of the adventure takes us into opposition. And one of the things I wondered is to what extent factions are supposed to be exerting their will and presence sort of a, not just onto, but against the characters. And should the characters be responding kind of against them or with them? And that's a part that sort of confuses me. Even when I look at the add-on product, that's all about the mortuary. I'm like, is the idea that I come into mortuary sort of, I think, fighting it. But then a lot of the encounters are sort of helping it. And, and that I'm not sure what's happening here. You know, like what what is the role? What is what is the role of factions at a zoomed out level within the Planescape campaign? Is it color? Is it interest level? Yep. Maybe it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that goes along with a couple other tips I have, which is don't <laughs> introduce them all at once mm. and let the players ferret out what the factions are rather than just doing a lore dump. Make yeah. it something that they're excited to learn about and it's important that they mm -hmm. learn about. And and finally, understand your your player's tolerance for the philosophy mm -hmm. part of this. Um, because there is a lot of, you know, I, I don't like alignment because it tries to do too much with too few words. Mm -hmm. uh, this to me is along those same lines. Now that's a personal thing. Other people might disagree, but it's it's the same thing here. Uh, where you want these factions to motivate play, to entertain, but you don't want it to turn into a philosophical debate that really extends outside of the game. So, like, does a small difference in the philosophies of the Bleak Cabal and the Doomguard, who are normally quite well aligned, um, make things interesting for your story? Will players be like, ooh, these, these two factions are very, very similar. There's this one difference, and now they're at war with each other about mm -hmm. it. That could be motivating, it could be cool, or it could be like, let's let's discuss the philosophy of nihilism and what it really means and why both factions are wrong and this game is stupid because <laughs> no one understands what nihilism really is. Yeah. Right? And that, that sort of thing. So, so bring that into focus. And I think what I want, and, and it's perfect for Planescape, right? Because Planescape should be this larger than life world uh, or city. Um, in a typical campaign, if, you know, say somebody we know has been put in jail. Well, you go talk to, to the jail and you assume that the jail is just people that do what jails do. Right. And so you, you know, maybe they're corrupt or maybe they're not, but you're just going to go deal with them and see what how to get them out there in Planescape. There, this is a faction, and they have agendas and these beliefs and these powers, and 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 they are part of the magical fabric of the world. Versus, you would probably expect the people in a jail, even in the Forgotten Realms, to be quite mundane in general. They might have a spellcaster on staff, but they're not right. They're not like planar or whatever. And in this case, they are, and they've got these big power things that are going on, and and in fact, are part of the fabric of Sigil. So. That's where it gets interesting. And I think that is a really cool idea. If that can if I can make that sing as a DM, then amazing. Now I feel like I'm in some great movie, right? Where like you don't just go talk to the people who are uh, running the laws. You don't just go to the courts. Like going to the courts is a big deal because they're this faction. Well, how do I do that? What do I do as DM and as player to make that a really cool experience? 
Mm-hmm. And so as Teo said, uh, on the outer planes, belief shapes reality. That's a quote from the book. So we know that the Lady of Pain is all powerful, but we're told the factions and the members can remold not just the planes, but the sigil as well. And we were told that the map is always changing yeah. uh, because the city itself is always changing. So you can use that to give your players a little more interesting background and a little more interesting setting, but also allow them to change the world through messing with or joining with the different factions. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, um, factions are yeah. led by fact. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, the, 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 the factals who are the, the, it's the, the term for the leader of any one faction. These have, their own entities, personalities, the very lightly touched upon, but still they, they are shaping the direction in which the faction goes. And one of the things that's presented here is that it's clear that the factal in general is not operating with an iron fist. They have a lens as any kind of world leader does. They have a lens through which they see where the faction should head. And this may please some, but not all members of the faction. I thought that was interesting. So those factals become a key or, or, or a lock through which the characters can, uh, a key through which the characters can unlock certain things, uh, whether it be taking control of a faction or moving the direction of a faction. And if you move a direction of a faction, then you can move the direction of Sigil as a whole. So they are important. They are the boss monster <laughs> in whatever combat role-playing exploration that you want to hinge your adventures on. So it's good to have those things there and they're spelled out well in this book and they are well described. So let's, let's just get right to it. Let's, let's talk about these factions. We are told that factions rise and fall. And so at any point, any of these factions could completely lose power, completely be wiped out. If the lady of pain Uh, allows it or makes it happen and there are also some minor factions that could fizzle out or ascend to one uh one of great power let's briefly touch on these factions we'll start with the athar who claim that the gods are frauds they run a spy network from their headquarters of the shattered temple and they act when a religion begins to gain too much strength yeah, that's interesting. This idea I'll, of like... I'll pause there to let you... Yeah, I mean, so the concept is that they are supposed to discover the secret behind the multiverse because it's not, oh, there are gods creating it. There's something behind that. So if we can get to what that is, then we would have, I don't know, power, understanding, whatever it is. And so they're they're constantly looking into what all the other religions are doing. Okay. And, and, you know, and then I asked myself, well, you know, what are they doing in the city? That part's clear. What does a character who's a member of them do? And that's where it gets a little interesting, right? Like, but, but fun. I think I can work with this, right? I, I like them. Yep. Okay. Uh, next, we have the bleak cabal who find no sense in the multiverse. And because there is no meaning, they work to ease the suffering of others. They sort of run the hospitals, right? They run the... Mm-hmm the centers to ease people's pain for the most part. 
but there is sort of a nihilistic, uh, sorry, nihilistic view mm-hmm. uh, that they hold as well, which could <laughs> seem to run contrary to this wanting to help people, because if nothing matters, then why bother helping someone? That yeah. can be easily twisted. It's it's a it's a fundamentally strange one. This is one I think I read many many times trying to understand it. Like nothing matters, so we better ease everybody's suffering. Okay, yes, but so it's a little strange. So suffering but... matters, so therefore something matters. <laughs> something matters. Right. No, yeah, and and maybe what it yeah. really is, it's less that nothing matters, but the, but nothing. There is no plan, right? There is no no ultimate answer and in a world without answers then i guess it means that everybody's most people are misguided and so therefore they need help because the nothing will just come and help them right nothing will magically lift you up from from your sorry state so let me offer you sanctuary and healing okay sort of uh, uh, along those same lines next is the doom guard who celebrate destruction and decay uh okay so but they don't try to speed it up it says they don't they celebrate it but they don't necessarily do it but they do uh yeah they see yeah it's sort of uh yeah maybe the best examples like you i read this several times yeah they run the armory and so maybe that's sort of the example of like you know we we give everybody weapons because that's sort of a natural way that you will cause destruction and then they give this idea of a tree is Mm -hmm. cut to build a house so you sort of destroyed to build and then the house will eventually collapse or burn so that thing that you built will fall apart so you're sort of celebrating that and you want the end to be like everything's destroyed but you're not speeding it up and i feel like they just put that in there i feel like these factions compared to second edition but i i'm no expert so i'd have to go back and compare but these feel like they are less volatile, less conflict-oriented uh, than the previous ones. And so that the Doom Guard, you know, are not trying to destroy everything, or, and let's say most of them aren't. Therefore, you can get along with them or be a member of them more easily, maybe? Right. Yeah, that, I got that as I was <laughs> reading through and what I knew of the old ones. I got that exact same idea, Yeah, which was... They want all of these to potentially be good guys, but to potentially be bad guys, but to potentially be something the players join, <laughs> yeah. but potentially be something the players fight against. Uh, so let's look at the faded next. Um, those who take all they can and more. Uh, basically entitled capitalists. They they want, uh, they believe in the 1% and they believe that because they think they are the 1%. percent mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and they they're the tax they're the collectors. Tax collectors. Right? Perfect. Yep. 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 Uh next is the fraternity of order who discover laws to find truth and they administer the laws in the high courts. Mm-hmm. You want to take yeah, the they next have this couple? Th- well, the fraternity of order has this thing about axioms and the idea that like the the laws that you're finding are all good but but if you can uncover like a fundamental truth an axiom then you gain power and if you were to find all the axioms then all power would be yours which is an interesting belief that is sort of like really you really believe that okay sure (laughs) like let's just go with that okay um the hands of havoc who free society through chaos 
They oppose rigid laws. They set fire to outdated and oppressive institutions, letting the ashes pave the way for something new. And they hide in warehouses, and they also masquerade as other factions to find if any faction gets too powerful and then tear it down. So it's sort of like a super souped-up version of the Harpers, right? They're always looking for who's getting too powerful, but really to actively destroy them. Like, they're not just... They really walk that walk, and, 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 and I guess are constantly going through and tearing things down. So they're probably the most volatile, most dangerous, as described. Of, of these factions. Uh, next, we have the Harmonium, who enforced peace through might. Peace at any cost. Sometimes education and sometimes enforcement with no flexibility or compassion. Um, they form the barracks of the city, they patrol the city, and they keep records of all the arrests. So they are the mm -hmm. everything must be lawful, and everyone must follow that law, even if we have to bust a few heads to do so. Right. And they kind of make that distinction of some of them are more, you know, violent minded than others. And it's like, OK, sure. Um, next, are the Heralds of Dust. Uh, we talked about these a bit because they show up in the digital release. Uh, they believe everyone is already dead. And the idea is that there are cycles of death. And somewhere, if one can find it, is the true final death, which takes you beyond this multiverse. I, what I like about this is that it probably is something that you'd think of, you know, if you die in the mortal realm and suddenly you realize that, hey, you're in these outer planes in these God planes, then you might sort of go like, well, wait, that wasn't was that even death? You know, like. There could be something else beyond this, right? Where where would that be? So I, I like that that concept. Um, they process the dead in the mortuary, and many of them are undead. So I, I think they're a pretty fun faction. Made me think of Terry Pratchett's Knack uh, McFeagle from uh, like a Hatful of Sky in those books, because uh, they're, they're pixies and they think that they're dead. They think they died and came to this world, and now when they die in this world, they go back to the world of the living. Oh. So they don't. They sort of celebrate it, mm -hmm. uh, and it's just a cycle of. Of back and forth and back and forth, which which uh, I, yeah. you know, we've seen we see that in in some real mm -hmm. world uh, beliefs. So that, that that's yeah. kind of funny. Uh, Mercy killers, Mercy killers are next. They bring justice to the deserving. Uh, they are ruthless in what they do, so they can process the guilty and they run the prisons. Yep, yep. Yeah, the mind's eye who next. grow to godhood. Uh, growth and experiential learning leads not just to improvement, but to shaping reality. And you can see how somebody in Sigil would think so. So they are in the foundry creating tools and parts, and they're all about understanding how things work. But through experiencing, you can't just be told, you must do it. And this will lead to gaining power and shaping reality. It's a little flimsy, but so are a lot of these. So, hey, yeah. Hats off to all the machinists out there in the world listening. Uh, <laughs> next, we have the Society of Sensation, who find truth through experience. So sensations and experiences lead to understanding the multiverse. They run the Civic Fest Hall, providing joy and diversion to the many citizens and visitors to Sigil. And the, the final one. Yeah, the Transcendent Order. Ascendance. Yeah, the last of the sentences is the transcendent order who act unfettered by thought. Unify your mind and body until you don't need your mind to guide it. 
I've been working on this for years. Uh, so they work in the or live in the great gymnasium, training their bodies so that they can just be all one, but without the mind part. Okay. Hmm. Usually, you think you transcend the body, so but those this is like transcending the mind. It's funny. Exactly. I'm I'm trying to transcend everything, uh, mind, body, soul, whatever. So those are the ascendants. Now we get some minor ones. There are three that are given right in this section, the free league, um, who prize the individual foremost, uh, the incantarium, who consume magic and its secrets, and the ring givers, who give as much as they get, uh, and charity is the path to enlightenment. These were obviously ones that were there before that have been sort of demoted mm -hmm. in this version but they are still there. And then we get three other minor ones that aren't even mentioned in this, but they're mentioned in the section talking about under sigil. So I, I added them up here. The Coterie of Cakes, a destitute band of rosy-cheeked bullies who assert the multiverse is a great multi-layered cake and that baked goods are its fundamental unit of trade. I remember seeing this in Adventures from, the, uh, from previous editions right. of Planescape. The Re Revolutionary League, a once popular faction that fell away to disorganization. It's a mishmash, a mishmash of misfits and outcasts who vow to dismantle society. It's not unheard of to see people who don't want to be any sort of organization having trouble keeping an organization together. And finally, the Undivided, a faction composed wholly of creatures native to Sigil, they believe that those who pass through the planar portals are destroyed and replaced with clones. I mean, you got to love the Star Trek thing, right? If your matter is being reconstituted, then yeah, you were killed. Right. <clears throat> and, yeah, I like it. And what these final three show us, what these final three show us is that you can make your own as the game master. If you want to make a faction of seven people who the characters run into during an adventure, you can do so. And the characters may wipe them out if they are opposed to the characters. The characters may prop them up and they become may become more and more powerful to the point of becoming ascendant uh, if enough people begin to join the faction and follow its tenets. So we, we have the factions out of the way. Let's just talk really quickly about the wards mm -hmm. because the city is divided into these wards. Um, and the factions sort of have hold sway in different wards, depending on where their headquarters are, or if this is the area where their specialty is uh, handled. Yeah. So we have the clerk's ward, the hive ward, the ladies ward, the lower ward, the market ward, and under sigil. Uh, do any of these stand out to you or do you want to say anything about them, Teos in general? They're all neat. They play different roles, right? Clerk's Ward is all very like the stuff that makes a city run uh, with the Hall of Records and all kind of stuff. The Hive Ward has is, is sort of dangerous and it feels like like you wrote here, the scum and villainy area. Um, <clears throat> the Grease Pit where Justice Armand said uh, based on the fast food places he worked <laughs> in Texas, uh, the these all these different neighborhoods can create different experiences. And so I definitely really like this about the city, right? I love in a city having a feel for why I go to different areas of it and what should be there. And, and this delivers on that. Um, 
especially in a city where the map is a little sort of loose and malleable, then this becomes very helpful for me to think through what kind of experiences to create. And then you can play around in your own campaigns with what happens when one faction is wiped out. Mm -hmm. What happens yeah. when the clerk clerk's ward changes because uh, the society of sensation uh, is wiped out or the fated are wiped out, right? The 1%, the, the rich are eaten. Uh, what happens <laughs> when a different faction rises up, not just in terms of <laughs> the plots that happen there, but the physical makeup of this ward. You can have a lot of fun with that as long especially, as players understand the story behind it. Especially when the coterie of cakes are the ones that eat the rich, then that's perfect. Yes. Let them eat cake and or the rich. Yeah. Uh, I, under Sigil is its own special yeah. thing uh, because it sort of, it's the sewers of the city, right? No faction is ascendant there. It's where things go when they need to escape the city, but they can't escape Sigil. So they just sort of trickle down into the underbelly of the city. And that's there. Yeah. It, it, I mean, my one worry about all of this is that this is a lot like there is a lot happening here for a DM to juggle with. Uh, and it may be overwhelming, especially when you go in and say like, well, I already have maybe you came into this product thinking that you were going to deal with the outer planes. But no, there's also, you know, we'll talk about the gate towns. There's also the outlands and the outer planes and this complex city. And so there's a lot here. And, and that's the one thing that I really worry about with Planescape is, is, you know, whether a DM picks this up and goes, I don't know how to possibly handle all this. There's yep. a lot. The good news is you can start small, right? We, when we yeah. talk about world building, we talk about top down or bottom up. Yeah. Your campaign can be a bottom up campaign. You can set it in the market <laughs> board. And you can say to the characters, this is the important thing that you need to do levels one yeah. to four. You need to secure, uh, and you can build a, a uh, stronghold, right? A bastion, if you will. Uh, yeah. You could build that there, and then you can slowly reveal the rest of this city, then slowly reveal the outlands, then slowly yeah. reveal the other planes, and make just the smallest part of this rich setting real and fun and evocative to your players yeah i mean it's more than you can possibly cover i'm trying to think of a campaign where you could cover all these areas of this city and some of the gate towns and you know it's just there's a lot here and so you're right you have to think about it like there's a lot choose your favorites weave the story with those favorites start small move slowly across those favorites because there's more here than you could possibly use. Yeah. So don't let it overwhelm you because you're not going to use all of it. You couldn't. <laughs> and, and then I'm curious, exactly. what is the advantage? And the last part of this chapter. Exactly. The last part of this chapter just gives us 10 adventure hooks in Sigil, six missions that you can take on behalf of a faction, eight calamities that can befall Sigil that your characters have to deal with, and then a D100 table that actually holds 35 encounters that you could have in sigil and they're basically just one word uh or one phrase encounters you come across 10 cranium rats that sort of thing uh, so it's not in depth but it's there to spur your imagination on if you need it 
whew, there we go. We've covered chapter well, two. Well, what do you think about those? Can we just very quickly say these tables? Mm -hmm. Good? Yay? No? They, they're better than not having them there, but they don't do a lot for me other than to give me a blueprint for what the designers of the setting think Hook should be, what faction mission should be, what Calamity should be, or what Encounter should be. Yeah. So uh, neither, neither yay nor nay. It's yeah. just, it's there. They're going to do these tables. So there you go. Yeah, I I feel like I would take out this whole Encounters table. I, I mean, I already have a monster section and stuff. Like, it, it, it's not like it's hard to figure that out. Um, especially when these aren't tiered. So what does it matter? Um, I, I think what I would like is a little more of the Mike Shea approach of tell me what a campaign could look like. And I'd love to have here are three, three cool starts to being in Sigil, right? Rather than the adventure hooks, give me three yep. cool starts and I can choose one of them and then give me the taking it from there, from those three cool starts, some additional things I could do to create a campaign. Right. As as the layers are peeled back, where would I go? That would work with all three of them. Right. I totally doable. And it'd be a lot of fun. And that way you could choose your start that works for your party and know where you're going to go with some options and so on. That to me would be really useful uh, beyond this, because these things, they're fine. They're good. You know, they, they learn that a terrifying war machine is being transported through sigil for use in conquering a material plane world. It's a fun idea. But now I've got to go do a bunch of work. And and I'd like a little more than just a, a starter idea. I'd like to actually have some flesh on the a skeleton that I could put flesh upon at least more than just a concept. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I agree. I would have rather seen it. I think at this point in the camp in the campaign at this point in the editions lifecycle with this particular product, you're not going to get new players, new DMs coming in and buying this. I mean, obviously some will. But for me, this this book is for people who who know how to put together campaigns already. So while what you're saying ab absolutely should be there, I would prefer it to be there. I don't give I don't give too many demerits to this chapter for I, that. So reason. I'm I'm going to disagree with you because you know Fifth Edition has been remarkable, <laughs> remarkable for its growth and bringing in new players, right? And half of all players are new to the edition. And then I think of things like like there was a great video a while back and you know, long ago that uh, on Lubofen's channel where she reviewed uh, Tomb of Annihilation and said, you know, I picked this up because it looked cool. And then I realized, oh, it's super deadly. And I realized I don't really want to run a super deadly campaign. And I'm like, yeah, like like it totally should say it should make it clear what this is. And that if you're relatively new to running campaigns, what is the experience that this is going to provide? And I don't know that Planescape comes with some, you know, warning or knowledge or whatever. It's sold as if everything should be great, like all other products on the shelf. But but it's obviously not true, right? This is quite complex. And I would recommend it not to a new person, but to an experienced person. But that's not what ends up landing. You know, like someone's going to buy this. Someone's going to get this and a player's handbook for Christmas. And, you know. And <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I think Tomb of Annihilation was different because it's a, an adventure rather than a setting. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the other information that we've already read in this book <clears throat> up to this point can help help someone 
get along. I, I, I'm not trying to say don't put in what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that would have been hundred percent better. Uh, I'm just, like I said, I'm not going to like one star would never buy. Right. Because they chose to do this rather than uh, spelling yeah. it out a little more clearly. That's all. Yeah. Agreed. But next time, next time we will look at chapter three, Sigil and the Outlands, the Outlands. We will finally reach those dreaded Outlands and see what's going on there. Whew. We'd made it through chapter two. Didn't know if we would make it, but we did, Teos. We did. And you know who else made it through chapter two? All our listeners. So thank you for listening. Thank you for backing us on Patreon if you do so. Um, like I said at the beginning of the other show, hearing people say that they listen to the show and that they appreciate that what we talk about, it helps them in their game mastering or playing or adventure creation or campaign creation. We totally appreciate that. Uh, it gives us strength, as does having backers. Having backers helps us do these things that we do. So if you are a backer, if you're a Master of Dungeons backer, thank you so much. If you're a Master of Realms patron, Thank you. You have a special shout out in our show notes. And for you masters of the multiverse, we read you on the show as we will right now with Keith Ammon of the Monsters Know What They're Doing. It was a great chatting with you at Game Hall Con, Keith. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, thanks for the question. Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Nathan Fuller, the Mighty Jerd. Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst. Sorry we missed you at Gamehole Con, Sean, yeah. next time. Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover. Chad Lynch, great seeing you at Gamehole Con. The Math Magician, Eric Menge, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Paisley, great to see you and run a game for you, Robert. Yeah. Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo. Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simonse, David Somerville from Prismanox.com, the 5e space opera setting. Joe Tyler, James Walton, and last but not least, Graham Ward. Graham, great to see you too. Uh, thanks to all our listeners and all our patrons. If you like the show, please do consider supporting our Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash masteringdnd. Also, if you get a chance, leave us a review on Apple Podcast or whatever means you listen to our show. You can also via, uh, subscribe via our YouTube channel if you want to see us in the flesh. Teos, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at alphastream.org. From there, you can get to all my videos, my blog posts, and everything else. And Sean, I can find you where? You could find me on all the social medias is, is, is at Sean Merwin. You can also find the podcast at Mastering D&D, Twitter, Dice Camp, uh, Mastodon, Blue Sky Now. Uh, you can always find us at the Patreon, ask questions there via our Discord, which you get access to if you join our Patreon. And we answer questions on our YouTube channel, Mastering Dungeons. So, Teos, we have dealt with the factions and we have traversed the wards of sigil what are we going to do now uh well i'm going to start my own faction 
where uh, I it's going to be all about how we have to find this mythical place called Columbia and perfect the amazing cup of coffee. If you get a good enough cup of coffee, the secrets of the multiverse are unlocked. And I will probably be uh, in the middle of a bender in the high board. We'll see you there.